You're listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia, and I'm assisted behind the scenes by my sound engineer, Justin Ward. This is a podcast about politics, society, science, and art, and about how everyone is wrong apart from us. I hope to provide a forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum and counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, everyone. My guest this week is novelist Ewan Morrison. He is the author of quite a number of novels, Distance, Ménage, Close Your Eyes, and uh, Swung, which was made into a film, which I gather has more than a million views on YouTube. And I'm afraid I haven't watched it, but um, you should go watch it. Um, as well as a short story collection called The Last Book You Read. And two books that I, the two books of his that I have read, which is his 2012 collection, Tales from the Mall, which is a collection of fiction and nonfiction pieces about malls, which are in themselves a kind of dystopian world. And his most recent novel, Nina X which was published last year and was the winner of the Saltire Prize for Fiction. Let's begin with a passage from uh, Nina X. Okay, this is from early on in the book, page 21, and it's Nina when she's a child um, growing up within um, a Marxist collective that is pretty obscure in the way that it's managed to diverge from the communist norm and develop some eccentricities of its own. There is no self-criticism this week because the fascists contaminated the rice and now everybody uses too much toilet paper. So we have to use newspaper, but not look at the stories because they are all capitalist propaganda. I accidentally stared at one page of a woman near some water with breasts even bigger than Comrade Jenny and a very white smile and long, long hair like Comrade Jenny too, but not red. The picture made me look at my face in the toilet bowl water and make comparisons. I also confess to kissing my own arm till I was dizzy in the communal bathroom and thinking about someone just like my shadow, but a boy. I said my whispers in my bed and taught Comrade Zana the right words. She is ignorant, like the masses, but new, so she won't be hit with the ruler just yet. I told her, we have eradicated greed, sexism, racial inequality, mouse poo and murder, and soon these words will cease to have any meaning. We are all broken shards from many imperialist wars, and Comrade Chen has brought us together to make a vessel to hold the pure water of revolution. All praise Comrade Chen. She repeated it after me and slept on the floor next to Comrade Una. The project had the bad dream about the baby bird again, but I'm not to wake the comrades ever. So I made myself think of the picture of the smiling children and the glorious leader. I want to go into his picture and be the first to read of his great plan for us all. So I maybe should have said there that um, Nina, when she's a small child, uh, goes by the name of The Project uh, because the collective have decided that gendered names uh, and names with history have to be, um, have to be erased. Um, and she has a sort of project in engineering, socially engineering a new kind of, of child, a perfect, uncorrupted and incorruptible um, communist child. She's the kind of living incarnation of, of Lenin's new communist man, 
or that's what the very small breakaway communist collective decides they're trying to do with her. They're, they're absolutely tiny, aren't they? It's like a kind of student club gone crazy. Well, it's, it's, um, it was like based on real research of what happened or what happened to a number of these collectives through the 80s and 90s and into the 2000s. So in, in America, in Sweden and the UK, there were different collectives that uh, started off with 20 or 30 members, but then decayed downwards um, into the single figures. Um, and something quite quite specific as well about these Maoist um, groups that were really cut off ideologically from the rest of the Marxist project and saw themselves as little outposts in the West waiting for the great Chinese revolution to sweep over the world. But, of course, that never happened. Um, so they, they really went in on themselves um, and, and sort of and became kind of perverse and cult-like in a sense with their own language and their own um, belief that you can completely uh, alter the existence of, 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 the, of the members, to purge them of all ideological contaminants. Um, it's, a, it's a really cult-like way of thinking about things and shares a great deal with um, the religious counterparts and religious and apocalyptic cults. Yeah. So the book, um, I'm I'm going to give a really brief little bit of summary uh, because I don't I want people to go and read the book. I um, I don't want to give any spoilers, but the project um, uh, Nina, as she's um, later known when she begins to when she finally escapes and begins to have her own name and things. So she's brought up by this this tiny. Um, breakaway Maoist cult in Scotland. And when she actually escapes and enters real life, things do not go very smoothly for her in real life either. Um, and I was, I, I thought there was, as I was reading, I was remembering, um, I was uh, reminded in many ways of Emma Donoghue's novel, Room. Yeah. But in, in Donoghue's novel, the main character and her son escape from their captivity and things go very smoothly once they're fairly smoothly once they um, enter real life. Uh, whereas in Nina's case, the authorities don't know what to do with her. Mm. Um, and uh, it's um, it, uh, the story after she escapes is actually more terrifying than when she's in the cult. I was reading some of the reviews of your novel and it said, the novel is hilarious, which is maybe I just don't have a sense of humor, but I find it actually very scary. I was reading On Tenterhooks. It would be, I felt it's so easy to become diagnosed and institutionalized. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and for things that are the result of traumatic experiences to be um, essentialized and medicalized. So um, I thought it was uh, un unlike um, unlike sort of other dystopias that I've that I'm familiar with. There is this sense that when you escape from the dystopia, the real world is another kind of dystopia. Mm -hmm. um, I think you put that beautifully. Actually, um, one of the things I was looking at really. I did a ton of research on just exactly what happens to people that don't fit into the world 
um, once they're exposed to, you know, once they break away from cults and have to live in the real world. And this tragic um, kind of history, really, of, of these poor souls not quite making it. Um, whether these are feral children, you know, who like uh, Mowgli, mm. who was actually based on a real life story of a child from India, or Oksana, the the Russian dog girl who'd you know, been raised with dogs after the fall of the Soviet Union, um, or you know any other kids that were that were basically neglected to such a horrific degree. Um, and one of the sad things I stumbled across was that these people can really fall between the gaps in the social services. You know, there's real gaps between the social work department and um, the charities that try to help. Um, and what tends to happen, as you say, is, is, is there's a push towards sort of medicalizing, um, medicalizing the rather strange mindset that they have, or the it's, it's often just seen as neurological damage, you know, and I think perhaps, we're too quick to write off people um, who've been subjected to trauma or too quick to medicalize them. Because they do sort of pose a threat, in a sense, to the way that we see the world. Um, doing the research on the on the kind of questions that Nina would be asked, you know, she'd be tested to see if she'd suffered neurological damage um, and also tested for empathy levels as well to see if, if the neurological damage was so profound that she could be a danger to other people and to herself. And one of the things I think people find funny in the book is the way that Nina just fails all these tests. Um, and a lot of it's to do with her ideological. Yeah, um, I didn't find that funny at all. At all. Well, you, know, so, you know, so for example, a doctor asks her about parents and mothers and, mm -hmm. you know, she and, you know, she replies, uh, you know, pure Marxism, that 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 parents are, are the source of all oppression and cruelty in the world and that the nuclear family must be destroyed. And as a result, the doctor ticks a box saying she's got lack of empathy, you know, um, and on and on it goes through these sort of normalizing tests that you would go through um, to determine whether you could fit into society. If you're a child who was raised with this total dogma, you'll answer a lot of those questions wrong. And um, so that's really the danger for Nina is that she's kind of gone from one kind of institutionalization inside this collective that doesn't let her go outside because they don't want her to be contaminated by capitalism into the arms of other institutions in what she calls freedom. Um, and there's, you know, there's this repeated line that she says throughout the book, which is, you know, she just wants to pass the tests mm. so she can stay in freedom mm. uh, because uh, she, she's failing tests all over the place, like like her personal hygiene, because she's been kept in um, in a basement for the last years of her internment. She's developed eccentric habits around eating, sort of strange rituals. Um, you know, she obsessively folds these paper birds as well. This is one thing that she's done to keep herself sane. Um, but these are all seen by um, by the social work department and by the doctors as, as signs of obsessive compulsive disorder or as signs of, of perhaps even autism. Um, so, yes, yeah, so that's the danger in the book. As the book progresses, as you worry, is Nina actually going to end up in one of these, in a very severe institution that's, that's even worse, in a sense, than what she's escaped from? So you actually had, you've actually had a lot of, uh, well, um, quite a lot of personal experience with um, cults and alternative lifestyles. Um, yeah. You've had a really extraordinary life. 
Mm-hmm. And um, your parents uh, joined a, you call them intentional communities, which I think is a lovely term mm-hmm. in the ARIO article, meaning um, I think you put it like it's it's not communities that naturally have naturally coalesced uh, from people who live locally or who are related or who share an interest or something. But these mm-hmm. are communities that were designed and um, an attempt to create community. Um, and your parents, um, your parents join one of those communities in Findhorn. Is that right? Well, the, well, I went to Findhorn myself. Mm-hmm. My parents, my parents were involved in um, other other intentional communities, mm. not, specific, oh, not okay. specific, and and things, and a lot of the intentional community stuff kind of floated around. My parents they ran a they ran a, a folk festival in the Highlands and pulled in um, sort of hippies and New Agers and folk revivalists from all over the UK for about eight or ten years and. We had a pretty strange scene where there'd be lots of people sleeping on our floor all the time when we were kids um, who we didn't know. Um, and people came from all over the world, actually. We had strange visitors who, who'd heard about my dad and, and came to live with us for four or five months. Um, it wasn't effectively a, um, an intentional community, but I, after I kind of escaped from the orbit of my parents, I, I sought out intentional communities myself and realized I sort of had to see these things through. Um, you know, I can come at it from rebelling against my happy parents to become, um, a communist in my early, in my early days, I was a member of the socialist worker party, which was Trotskyist. Mm. And then I, I kind of gravitated back towards more anarchist ideas of, you know, what we now call parallelism, the idea you can create a parallel society to capitalism. So places like Findhorn and Oroville, um, which are intentional commu- communities to try to live in a usually a self-sustaining way. Mm. Um, so I, 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 um, I went and joined Findhorn for one of their awareness weeks um, and, and lived there. Um, and it's really, it's the new age capital of the world, I think people call it, um, although it might have uh, some competition with, with, with uh, say, SLN in, in uh, California. Um, but I just thought I have to sort of see this thing through. I have to sort of take it where my parents didn't, and just go and see how far how far this goes. And does it work? Can intentional communities actually work? Um, is it possible to cut yourself off from capitalism and modern modernity and technology and 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 have a self sustaining garden and be equal and share everything? You know all these these dreams that have floated around in the utopian imagination for hundreds of years, and before that, within the the uh, Christian ideal. Um, so um, yes, I, it's mon- like- it's monastic. It's it's like a it's a kind of monastic modern monasticism. Well, yes, it's the idea of really of purifying your your body and your soul at the same time. So a lot of these places they tend to very much go in for that sort of like vegan macrobiotic or vegetarian sort of lifestyle. And I think pairing away of what you see as contaminants, you know, the contaminants of modernity. Um, it's a thing that most people don't realize that there are really strong Christian roots to the whole hippie and, and um, subcultural stuff from the 1960s. Uh, they've got direct lineage back to, you know, St. Francis of Assisi, 
He used to, you know, strip off his clothes and preach to the animals because he was banned from um, speaking to to his own uh, congregation. Um, so he'd go off into the forest and speak to the birds instead, and his congregation would come around. And he he um, he basically did all the things that the hippies did. Um, as well, you've got the Anabaptists as well. Um, the early Anabaptists who who ended up doing things that we would now call communist. So. You know, they, they cast off um, material possessions, but also took over um, the town of Munster for, for, for four months in a, in a failed revolution where they, they uh, communalized all property and, uh, and, and, and fought and killed um, landowners and property owners. Um, they instituted a lot of the kind of experiments in alternative living that we still see, like in the 1960s, like uh, promiscuity was one of them. Um, you know, by extending this idea that, that there can be no private property, not even ownership of one person over another. Mm. So I just think it's a, you know, whereas I was born into it in the 60s, I've really kind of looked back and found where it came from and what the limits of this whole. Um, utopian dream really are yeah it's really a life's work i mean i'm still digging and still finding things that surprise me um so tell us about um using findhorn as an example um tell us about some of the things that go that kind of inevitably go wrong that are almost baked into the the Mm. whole idea of this of these kinds of communities okay so one of the real problems is you have communities set up in which there will be no competition. Everyone will be equal. Um, but within that, you start to very quickly get competitive puritanism. So people start trying to outdo each other um, in the amount of sacrifice they're willing to make to the community, uh, You know, doing things like eating less than anyone else, working harder hours. So... Competition is a very hard thing to get rid of, and you can end up in a, in, in what we call like a purity death spiral, um, where, for example, there was, and there was a case of um, there was a little faction within Findhorn, which was called breatharianism. Oh as God! In, yeah, not basically not eating. As in breathing on the air, yes. And uh, there was a woman found out in the mountains somewhere who'd, who'd starved herself to death. She was a devotee of the breatharian cult that, that had taken off within Fintorn. So, yeah, that's the death spiral of competitive Puritanism. Another one is, is, is um, they get rid of any feedback mechanism whereby you can say there's something wrong here. So, for example, if the... If the potatoes have been planted in the wrong place, there's too much water in their waterlogged. Rather than saying we've made a mistake, um, what they tend to do is they tend to ignore it completely or they tend to scapegoat. Rather than moving the potatoes elsewhere, you know, they may even pray for the potatoes or, or, you know, or, or everyone will just eat beetroot this year. No one will complain about it. So you end up with these kind of structural um, failures that start to amass, you know? We've all got um, diarrhea, but we're not going to work out where it's come from. We'll just have to hope that it all goes away. And no doubt it's come from outside and some contaminants from outside, you know? So you get in these intentional communities kind of breakdowns of, of 
utterly basic things, things that we take for granted, like food and water, become these really contentious political things. And you, and and behind this all is the idea that you've got a bunch of unelected rulers who can't be criticized in any way. Mm-hmm. When you do try to raise issues about malfunctions of things, it's like you're criticizing a spiritual leader. It's like you're questioning the authority of someone who's closer to God and nature than you are. So it just can't be done. Mm. Uh, so also having an unelected hierarchy, um, an unelected leadership, you can't get rid of them. Um, so anything they do um, just has to be papered over. Any mistakes they make have to be hidden. Um, so you, what starts off, say, as a little kind of anarchisty new age place ends up developing all the same systemic problems that you find in, in larger communist dictatorships. Yeah. So you get unelected leaders you can't get rid of. You have the breakdown of a system of feedback to report failures, which is basically what destroyed the Soviet Union eventually. Um, you have competitive Puritanism where posts are awarded status is awarded to the most zealous rather than the most talented, um, which is something that, that happened in uh, in China under Chairman Mao. Um, and also you get these, these ridiculous projects that are set just to prove people's um, commitment, level of commitment. Um, it was just a horrific event in China. It was called the Four Pests Project. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. It's um, featured in... in uh, Nina X. Uh, so it was the eradication of the four pests, which were um, mosquitoes, rats, sparrows, and I always forget the fourth one. But um, anyway, so the masses were mobilized to destroy all these animals and, and pests and insects um, as a demonstration of their devotion, uh, devotion and commitment to the communist cause, really. It wasn't really worked out that this would increase the yield of, of rice. This was the original, um, you know, justification for the whole thing was that, that, uh, mosquitoes made people sick. Rice and spar, uh, sorry, sparrows and, and, uh, rats stole rice. Uh, and, and so we could save millions of tons of rice every year if we eradicate these creatures. So, I mean, what happened is extraordinary to witness, um, this footage from, the great leap forward of the entire nation mobilized to destroy all its sparrows. Wheelbarrows of dead sparrows being dumped into pits, little children going around with kind of kebab-like sticks covered in sparrows, and they're all smiling, and the footage has got communist music playing, and uh, they, they killed something like two billion sparrows over the course of two years. And this then led directly to the great Chinese famine. Um, the first man-made famine of, of such a huge scale, precisely because if you eradicate uh, birds, you then you alter the ecosystem so much that locusts and other small creatures that, that feed on the crops have got no natural predators left. So it's a huge, um, I mean, that's a, that's a very big example of, of, uh, of how, ideological drives for purity can go wildly wrong. Um, and there were 45 million casualties within the Great Chinese Famine. It's sadly, something that we don't really know much about 
in the West, something we should know a lot more about. But um, in the macrocosm, sorry, microcosm, you you see these strange exercises going on in in, um, in New Age and uh, intentional communities, where where these group projects are enacted more for the idea of ideological purity than they are for any uh, obvious benefits that's going to come from them. There's also something, I mean, as you say in the in the ARIO article, there is there's something really paradoxical in the way in which so we're talk you've been talking about the more communal style projects, but mm. many people join these communities. They join it's it's very paradoxical. They join communities in order to focus more intensely on themselves. Yep. It's about individual self-improvement. It's all this kind of thing, be the change you want to see, um, yeah. which is a very nice positive thing for as far as it goes, but it only goes a very limited way. And I, I've always noticed in these kinds of communities that there are many people with this kind of glassy-eyed sort of narcissistic mm-hmm. thing. They're just, yeah. they're completely self-absorbed. Um, how how can I eat the most healthily? How can I fast and cleanse and detox and um, do my yoga and um, yeah and mm. achieve and and meditate? And there's nothing wrong with all of those things. Um, mm-hmm. There's nothing wrong with uh, self improvement. But what is the kind of point of self improvement if it's not to contribute something back to other people? It's mm. Uh, there's something very empty about this really intense focus on the self. Um, yeah. And for many people, I think the community is just this kind of, on the one hand, there's this puritanical drive to do, every, to do everything for the community. And on the other hand, people are really there in the community in order to be able to do their own self-improvement projects that end at kind of the boundaries of their own body. Well, this is exactly what the book Close Your Eyes um, is about, which is set in a place like Findhorn. And that glassy-eyed thing that the adults have as they pursue their own self-perfection, um, I refer to that you know, as closing your eyes upon everyone else. Um, and most important of all, you close your eyes to your children, to your children and to other people's children. Um, a fascinating thing about intentional communities is they have real trouble with children, um, the children suffer neglect. In in some very notable cases, they suffer sexual abuse. Um, they suffer from a lack of really knowing who their specific parents are as well. And uh, another one of the reasons that adults engaged in the pursuit of spiritual purity turn their backs on their own children and the promise they've made to commitment to other people's children is that children are just full of all the things that they're trying to get rid of. You know, so children are, are very me, me, me. They're very, um, they're very acquisitive and inquisitive. They want things. They want to try things. They're loud. They're in some ways consumeristic because they, you know, competitively want stuff. They fight. They bully. Uh, and really for, for, for adults who are trying to self-purify, um, they want to get as far away from kids as possible. Also, I think it's in the back of their minds a nagging, horrible doubt that actually, if children are nature, then surely if children are cruel, then nature must be cruel. 
So, so there's a real, you know, and you know, we find if you look at the developmental stages of childhood, which is something I explore in Nina X, um, it's actually important neurologically for kids to do things like lie. Um, it's it's a developmental stage going from you know weaning from the mother to say I to say I want to realize that you can actually cheat and deceive. Um, it's something that that um, you even see in apes as well. Um, it's just this it's this little bridge between infancy and 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 more developed childhood that, that comes through the neurological development caused by cheating, lying, stealing, and defying. Um, so it's it's hugely disappointing to the utopians and to you know anyone who believes the idea that we're born innocent and free, um, born without chains, as as uh, Jean Jacques Rousseau would say, mm. uh, or, or, or born a blank slate, mm. as the as the as the communists believe. Um, it's shocking to realize for these people. Um, who are trying to escape from all competition and all envy and hatred? That these things are really pretty hard, hardwired into into children, into their own children. Um, it's quite horrific sometimes the neglect that uh, hippies, new agers show towards their children. I'm always uh, reminded of of the Joni Mitchell scenario. You know, where mm, where, mm. where Joni adapt, it, sorry, um, abandon her own child to go off and find herself. Um, and this was fairly common, um, you know, in the late sixties as, as, as the cult of, uh, you know, following Maharishi this and Maharishi that took off. And as, as, as the new age, um, expanded and, and more, more people were pulled into it. Children are really the evidence of how, um, how little, how difficult it is, how unmalleable people are, yeah. um, you know, how much nature matters, how much heritage your inheritance matters how 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 unperfectible we are and it's this kind of the problem with these communities and with utopianism in general the impression that i was getting as i was reading your things i kept thinking about it's this inability to deal with trade-offs to understand mm-hmm. that without the bad things you cannot have the good things it's not mm. possible. You can't have um, you can't have great literature and mm. scientific progress and yeah. um, humanistic progress unless you have free speech. Um, but if yeah. you have free speech, a lot of people are going to use it to tell you you're a dick on the internet. Um, yeah. You know, and so if you're trying to eradicate, um, you're trying to stop people from being able to say nasty, hurtful, or genuinely harmful things, you know, because there are many, many people use their speech to really do serious harm. There are a lot mm-hmm. of de- convincing demagogues and preachers. and yeah. But if you try to eradicate that, then you lose all the good stuff. Um, and it's the best that you can hope for is this kind of um, you you talk about a race to the ascetic kind of bottom, 
Mm-hmm. That was a weird way of putting it. A race to the, an aesthetic <laughs> race to the bottom. <laughs> but I'm sure yeah. people's bottoms by the end were quite aesthetic as well. After I, all I the... wouldn't want to see the bottom of an aesthetic, uh, you know, of an aesthetic either. Yeah. No, I wouldn't want to go anywhere near the bottom of any aesthetic. <laughs> After all that macrobiotic food and things. Yeah. Um, Living on berries. Yeah. Um, you talk, there's a really extraordinary passage in the um, in the first of the two ARIO articles, which I want to read. Um, mm-hmm. So this is about about the kind of emotional um, impacts. Mm-hmm. One result of this, so the result of this kind of um, the eradication of in, individual, the distrust of individualism and yeah. of um, and of, as you said, I guess, possessiveness in yeah. the literal sense of material possessions, but also in the sense of possessiveness of a partner. Um, mm. You say, one result of this is that intentional communities are lonely places. Mm. Focus on a rigidly defined language and self-purification lead to isolation of each individual from every other. Group hugs replace one-to-one intimacy and partner exclusivity, which are seen as needy vestiges of the old order. Derived from Eastern religions, Hinduism, Taoism, and Buddhism, strong partner bonds are seen as weakness and dependence. Tree-hugging, however, spread eagling yourself on the ground and kissing the earth, getting naked and being rebirthed through a naked human tunnel are common displacement activities and go some way to making up for actual one-on-one relationships. During many such exercises, people often regress to states of early childhood need, crying for mothers that didn't give them enough physical affection. Outbursts of tears that are then greeted by a pylon of communal hugs and become a perverse behaviour. Everyone wants to have a hug because they are denied intimacy, so they prey on the person who is upset. This writer has, on more than one occasion, seen a crying person feel smothered by the communal hug and yell, Get off me, please! I just need to be alone! But what they are really craving is a one-to-one emotional-physical bond, not the artificial and heavily enforced love-everyone-equally ethos that in effect deprives everyone of intimacy. What an extraordinary passage. Um, I was... was, um, I also interviewed Will Storr in this podcast um, oh. a little while ago. Um, I've interviewed Will twice, but we talked on the first occasion about his book on the cult of self-esteem. And there's yeah. a long chapter in there on Esalen. I don't know if you've read that book, um, but I thought that was a wonderful summary of a lot of the a lot of mm. the things that were said about emotional life at Esalen. Mm. Mm. There's um. There's a sort of fundamental um, alienation when you enter these spaces. Um, I think your 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 natural requirement of other people is 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 this immediacy thing that you get. You are having a great conversation. You saw eye to eye. You, you felt some spontaneous thing erupt between you and the other person, or you took a dislike to someone, or whatever. All of this is sort of frowned upon. Within these intentional communities, as you have to focus everything through the sort of spiritual center or your guide, your leader, um, everything has to 
I mean, this is where these things become cult very quickly. All of your emotions have to be censored, shaped, passed through the spiritual path, which is embodied by the leader. So it also makes people extraordinarily needy and dependent upon the belief system, the ideology. And, you know, people do become very like children in these situations. I remember when I was in Fintorn, we had a tree-hugging exercise where we had to all go out and find our own tree and and do something <laughs> with our tree. And, and it was extraordinarily hard for me to do this convincingly. So I thought, well, how do I like to do? I climb up trees? So I'll, I'll climb up this tree. And later on, when I was telling them that I climbed up a tree, because we all had to go so far away from each other that we would leave the, the people alone, everyone else alone with their tree. Um, <laughs> people thought that climbing a tree was violating the tree in some way, <laughs> standing on it, stamping on it, colonizing it. And I, and I used to hear these stories of, of like everyone was involved in this competitive demonstration of their spiritual experience. So you see this in a circle. Someone starts off and goes, yeah, I, I felt kind of moved hugging the tree. It reminded me of mortality. And then it would go around to the next one. And, the, you know, so the, the next woman would have to say, well, uh, um, I had my third eye was opened when I hugged this tree and I saw into the celestial beyond, whatever. And then round in the circle it went. People were making outrageous claims about this experience they'd had. Probably most of them had hugged their tree, had looked around to see if anyone else had seen them hugging their tree, had spent most of their time thinking up the story they were going to tell everyone else about what hugging the tree did for them. Um, but I think it's an interesting visual metaphor. You know, people 100 yards from each other hugging a tree and then coming together to competitively, um, in a sense, boast of, of how spiritually pure it made them um, I mean, I, uh, I, I, I had a kind of breakdown in Fintorn around these issues because I, I, I uh, ended up in tears over the fact that I wasn't feeling anything and that I felt people were being dishonest. And it caused such a huge repercussions and, and, and horror in our group community that um, eventually they decided there was something wrong with me and that, that what I needed was a group hug. So um, um, in tears, I was group hugged and, you know, just asking people to step away, please uh, leave me alone. I'm not here for your vampiric, you know, um, spiritual energy feast, you know. Mm. Wow. I, um, in, a, in a very small way, I recognize that kind of feeling. When I used to dance um, contact improv, which is a very, very yeah. kind of hippie style of dancing. Mm -hmm. And I remember, so we would do the, we would do the contact, which um, I really enjoy the, the kind of physicality of it. And then at the end, we would sit around in a circle and everybody had to say what the class had meant to them, the experience they'd yeah. had. Yeah. And everybody else was, was just giving these very giving this enormously hyperbolic praise to the teacher and talking about how meaningful mm -hmm. it had been and when it came to me I was just like it was fun um <laughs> I refused to participate in this but yeah. none of those people or very few of those people came back the next week or attended regularly whereas I actually went every week um so it was 
there was mm. it was definitely hugely dishonest. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a real kind of question here, which which I always ask myself is: there seems to be something that something true and something that we need in in these kind of alternative communities. They go off on their own tangent and they became cult like and involved groupthink. But I think there's something lacking in the in the modern world that that has people like me and maybe even yourself uh, go looking, you know, for for the answers. So you know, we feel we feel alienated in our work. We feel alienated in our relationships and alienated from nature and productivity. We don't make anything with our hands anymore. We're entirely dependent on stuff getting shipped over from foreign countries to be delivered to our doorsteps. We feel just at a distance from everything. And I think that's what pulls us towards intentional communities, new age communities, and maybe even, you know, dreams of revolution or of, of starting a new country or, or city or town or village from scratch. Um, there is something fundamentally wrong with the way we're living. And for a long time, I've been trying to put my finger on exactly what it is. Um, and it's, it, I mean, it does seem to me to be that, 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 that we're moving further and further away from each other um, and that we're becoming more and more mediated by technology. Mm. This seems fundamental problem that we're all dealing with. Um, and we seem to find only technological solutions to the problem that's caused by the technology. Mm, yeah. Uh, well, it's, it, I mean, it's much worse now, right now at the moment. Um, and it has been uh, kind of going back into lockdown has really, really mm. depressed me. Um, even mm. though I actually have kind of the ideal situation in a way because um, I live in a really beautiful um, house uh, right mm. next to Epping Forest. And I live with, um, I live with housemates who are old friends. Mm-hmm. Um so it is actually kind of like a very tiny, very lovely government, um, but it's a natural community, naturally coalescing community rather than an intentional one. Um, but nevertheless, I just feel, I feel like my life has become work, mm-hmm, exercise, mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, to relax, uh, chat to housemaids, um, watch some movies together and have dinner together sometimes and, and otherwise drink a glass of wine and read a novel. And I, I feel like there's no, I have this kind of, uh, it's a kind of cabin fever, but it's not really that I want to go anywhere geographically. It's more that I want to go to other people and to be with other people. Um, Mm. and Mm. I, I, and I just, lots of my friends have said, well, we can, we should Skype and Zoom and things. And I just do not want to Skype and Zoom with people. Yeah. I, I, yeah. It feels worse than nothing. Mm, um, it's like a, it's like a reminder of what you're missing. It's the aspartame of contact. <laughs> um, certainly the lockdown thing for us, it's made, it's made me realize that there's a kind of life that is, is um it's what I call sleep eat work shop shit mm. sleep work shop shit you just do it day after day after day there was a period in I think April where we were being funded by the government to sleep eat work shop shit um and reduced to that 
basic, um, you know, five things that you do every day, it, it's just unbearable. Mm-hmm. That, that that's all you're there to do. It's like eating becomes disgusting. You're you're eating so you'll defecate it back up again. So you'll, you know, sorry, you're eating so that you'll shift. Hopefully you're, downwards, not up. Yeah, sorry. Indeed. <laughs> you're, you're working online so that you will get some money online. Um, it, it just seems to be this little, you know, you're, you're shopping to keep other people in business mm-hmm. so, that you, so that everyone else can work. It all seems just way too basic um, and not enough. So I think it's, it's the whole lockdown thing's been making a lot of us ask, you know, is there not more to life than this? Mm-hmm. Um, what are we doing? Are we... It's like when you take the fun and the distraction out of consumerism, it really does just become this this meaningless cycle of material consumption and and uh, lacking in inspiration and motivation. And I think a lot of us are are asking now, what are we really doing with our lives? Mm. Um, maybe some good will come of this. Actually, maybe maybe there'll be people will ask big questions about how to lead more meaningful lives. Um, I've certainly kind of consolidated my work and, and as much as I'm thinking, right, I've only got to focus on the really big stuff that needs answering from here on in. I'm not going to, I mean, I'll, 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 I'll work to make the money to sleep and shop and shit. <laughs> um, but I think it's really important to, to answer the question of what is life that's more than that. And, you know, it's a question that the philosophers and the religions have been asking us for for 3,000 years, um, but it really needs looking at carefully just now, I think, and, and the lockdowns really, really raised that. I think that it's, um, I'm returning to the kind of utopian, the search for search for the alternative life. Mm-hmm. Um, and just so my own experience was, um, I taught uh, Argentine tango, um, mm-hmm. And basically, for about twelve years, my life was completely centered around tango. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I could could no longer do that. Profe- I could no longer do that professionally, or even with that kind of intensity, because I have back problems and um, mm-hmm. I'm getting old. <laughs> but um, it's the thing in tango is the good things are all connected to your experience in the moment. Mm-hmm. So. Um, the good things are you can't do it online. Um, and really, tango is just not happening now. Of course, you can listen to the music and things and watch videos, but you um, to dance, you have to be there in person and you dance always with one other person. You have this intense one-on-one experience. Yeah. Um, I don't mean you stick to the same partner all the time, every time you dance. I mean that as you're dancing in that moment, and you have to coordinate with them. You have to communicate with them. Yeah. Um, and it's a joint endeavor, which is sort of more than this, some of its parts. Mm. And you hold them in this very lover-like embrace, mm. which I think is a kind of double-edged sword because it feels a little bit like, although it's very, very much healthier, I think it's still a healthy thing, but a little bit like what you uh, described, it feels like a a real embrace, but it's also Mm -hmm. not. 
um, mm. because you're not embracing because you're lovers. You're embracing in order to do to do a dance. Um, mm. It's formalized, so it's like um, um, it's like two actors playing Romeo and Juliet. Um, it has that kind of feeling. It like reminds you of the real thing, and that can be also emotionally painful. I think. Well, maybe that's the best that humans can do. You know, mm. we can we can through a formula or a technique we can kind of trick ourselves into being more authentic. Mm. So through the craft of being an artist, we can we can discover things and create things that we couldn't do just by reason alone. Yes. Um, through, yes. The, through, through the discipline of meditation, we can go to places that reason can't take us. Mm. Um, through, through, the, through the craft or discipline of dance, we can experience a kind of touch that might even – be you know in some ways more rewarding than than the sexual you know in in some ways yes um, oh it's um, the most it, it i mean when it's working it feels like the most rewarding experience in the world um yeah. but it also has um I mean, it gives you pleasure and it gives another person pleasure. So I don't mean to imply that it's something, there is something unhealthy about it. Um, but it, I, the, the one thing though, is that dance is very ephemeral. Um, mm. When you've written your novel, your novel is there. Yeah. And we do occasionally have performances and tango is not very performance centric. Um, mm. And when people perform, it's usually for like six minutes or something like that. They're very brief. Mm bits of performance. So you do have videos um, and things, but um, most of it is not videoed or recorded in any way. Mm. When it's over, it's over. And so I do also have this feeling very frequently, or I had this feeling very frequently when my life was all dedicated to tango, that mm. it was all doing and no having done. And that mm -hmm. is what is kind of also missing from many of these communities. Um, mm -hmm. They don't achieve any concrete projects. Yes. And the focus is so much on the in-the-moment things, which is yeah. great. I mean, the moment is important, but it's also important to the satisfaction of having done is also very important. Well, of, one of the things you find in intentional communities is things are really tumble down, you know? So you can have so much focus on feeling good about yourself in the now that you let the um, tractor go to rack and ruin. You you've not you don't fix the the uh, polyplastic on the on the strawberry tunnel. Um, you know all the big things can kind of be put off because you have to have the 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 nowness feeling of feeling good about yourself. Um, I was always disturbed at every every utopian community I've been to. Um, just how how things just go to waste, how things are let go to rack and ruin. There's a, you know, there are experiments done and then abandoned, and then everyone wants to forget about them. We'll put off getting water from the lake uh, or digging the well. We'll just, you know, we'll just get by with buckets for the time being. Um, you know, this kind of stuff. So there, there are very short term thinking going on. Mm. Um, I think back to dancing as well, though, this idea of being in the now, there's something, there's something I only discovered recently um, when I was actually coming through a period of chronic fatigue. It's, it's some theories about the flow state. You've probably heard of this oh, before. Oh, yes. Chicks and yeah. Behai and the flow state. 
Yeah, yeah. And I realized that when I'm writing a book, I'm in the flow state. It it all comes very naturally. There's just this sort of spontaneous burbling up um, of stuff that wants to be expressed. It's very playful and fully engaging and three or four hours can go by. And uh, and then I'm exhausted at the end of it. Um, But when a book's finished, it's a strange thing. It's like extracted from the flow state through different processes of editing, copy editing, and then publication production and then uh, you know selling it and, and doing interviews and stuff it, it's no longer the flow the flow experience that it was before so I think every writer is always on to the next book to try to get back to that very addictive very tango like um, state of, of were you being fed by the thing that's challenging you you know um, like another dancer you're dancing with the text maybe in a way that's like a tango mm. Well, I have always felt very, I mean, I'd say always, um, I've written three books and, you know, they're not big selling successful books like yours either, but I've always felt very depressed after finishing a book. Totally. Um, <laughs> it's like they're all consuming. What is the point now? My all consuming yeah. project is gone. Yes, totally. And, uh, you know, I'm so troubled by this question. It just comes up again and again and again. What is the point? I, I, I just, it's, it's been my life's burden, actually. There are just these moments between projects where I go, what is the point? And it spirals down from, <laughs> you know, I would call this the nihilist spiral, if you like. <laughs> so it, you know, what's the point of thinking about some new ideas? I'll have to see how the new book does, you know, and then, oh, what's the point of writing anything? And then what's the point of, of you know, getting up early to write? Why don't I just sleep in? And then it's, you know, what's the point of eating well? What's the point of living? You know, it ultimately comes down to, uh, and if you're not careful between projects, you can go all the way down to that. I've done that more than a few times. It's a clinical depression from uh, from asking that question, what is the point? Um, so we've been talking a lot about these alternative hippie Mm. communities and Mm. um lest anybody think that because you are not a hippie um you are an enthusiast for the capitalist rat race (laughs) the kind of normal conventional thing maybe we should talk a little bit about your book about malls um oh yeah sure sure well yeah i I was raised a hippie kid you know i I was i was the classic hippie kid who has never met another child before, who goes, you know, because I've never socialized up, up, up until the age of four. I'd, I'd not really met any other children because we'd grown up in this little place in the middle of a peat bog in the far north of Scotland. Um, and so I was sent to school with sandals and shoulder length hair. You grew up in Wick, right? I grew up in Wick, yeah, yeah, which is about as far north as you can get yes, without I know falling, it. Off, <laughs> falling off Britain, yeah. Um, so I, so I had, there are many other people like me um, who went through the sort of horror of the hippie childhood, um, more than more than a few actors, uh, well-known actors, whose names completely escaped me. River Phoenix was one of them. Um, um, Lauren Groff was, you know, she wrote a book called Arcadia about growing up in a, in a, this kind of hippie environment as well. So we're, we're a bit of a phenomena. Mm. <laughs> the weirdly mixed up, confused, searching children of the failed hippie experiment. Um, so, uh, yeah, so that led me to um, 
so two books came out in the one year. There was Close Your Eyes, which was an exploration of uh, of the hippie alternative. It was the the intentional communities, and the other one was Tales from the Mall, which was me forcing myself to go and explore the things I hated and feared more than anything, uh, which is shopping malls and and just some naked consumerism. Um, and so uh, I, I went around malls in the north of England and Scotland and did interviews with. Um, with the staff, as many staff that would allow me before they realised what I was up to, um, and I think the best thing that came out of that, I got lots, lots of interesting, fascinating facts on the history of malls, and I wrote a number of short stories um, about characters sort of caught up in consumerism. But the most interesting part for me was the the anecdotes that um, that I heard from the staff in shopping malls um, that I then turned into little sort of vignettes within the book. Um, and these are just about very odd behaviors that go on in shopping malls, um, whether this is, um, you know, unexpectedly transgressive behaviors happen in, in alienated spaces like shopping mall car parks. Um, there was, for example, a, um, um, a, closet, a closeted cross-dresser who only ever dressed up um, as a woman in his BMW in the shopping mall car park, he would go buy some clothes, try them on, sit in the car for a little while. And the only person in the world that knew about him was the, the um, garage attendant of the shopping mall. So I, I was quite moved by that lovely little story. There was um, another one as well I think curiously touching was that the people um, who deliver all of the goods to the back of shopping malls, um, these spaces are incredibly alienated without light or anything. They're like kind of, they're kind of dungeon like these non, these are the spaces beyond the shops, you know, they're bare concrete tunnels and stuff with these doors. They smell terrible because of all the waste from all of the cafes and restaurants and everything. So these guys who deliver this stuff, um, they, um, they get lost all the time. They're looking for H and M to drop off their stuff. They're looking for Burger King, whatever. So they take a bit of chalk. And they mark they mark the walls with their particular color, and like 100 meters to go, 200 meters on the left, they give themselves instructions. And after years, these bleak back walls of the shopping malls were just covered in these chalk marks, which I just thought was a fantastic um, kind of counter story to the sort of facade of consumerism. So you get the shiny facade of the shopping mall or facades of the of the retail space. And behind that, behind the scenes, you had these unknown, unseen workers who were basically making kind of cave drawings uh, on the concrete to help them get around. So I, I just kind of dug dug around in the malls until I found these, these extraordinary little stories of real life, which I find redemptive in some way. I want to just move on a little bit to another topic and yeah. another book of yours, mm-hmm. and, and also another another phase of your life um so you have had such an extraordinary (laughs) such an extraordinary life i do hope you're going to write your memoirs it's funny though because for me it's it's just really the story of a very lost hippie kid Mm. you know a very lost kid with no values and nothing to believe in going out into the world as an adult trying to find something desperately to believe in so um I think the book you're talking about there is Swung, which yes. is S-W-U-N-G, which came about um, 
after uh, I got divorced, I became involved in the swinging community in Scotland, and uh, I acquired a partner, and we swung together with other couples. And for me, it seemed like some strange kind of mixture of the new age dream with kind of modern alienation turned into something good. Um, it seemed like a strange kind of secret parallel community, albeit a rather perverse one. Um, so I, I threw myself into that for a year. I didn't really think, mm, I'm going to do this as an experiment to write about. It's more just to do with, you know, that, that sort of post sixties thing of like seeing something through how far it can go. Um, and I found I, I discovered things when I started writing the book, really, um, which I'd not really realized when I was in the experience of, you know, having sexual relationships with multiple people. Um, how, do, how did you do it? Did you um, uh, use online or adverts or you went to parties? Um, both, really, both. Um, in fact, you know, people talk about a gaydar and stuff. I, I definitely developed a swingdar so <laughs> I could be in a public situation and 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 uh you know with my partner and we could we could work out if, if there were other swingers in the room <laughs> it, was, it was and we sometimes had fun like that but mostly it was it was um it was the online thing which was burgeoning really just beginning out um back in about 2004 2005 um swinging really swinging websites really pioneered what was later to become things like Tinder and Grindr and everything, a good 10 years later. People were doing this within the swing community long before that. Um, in, in that respect, they were kind of, you know, second sexual revolution pioneers. Uh, you know, and there's a, there's a kind of um, fluidity in sexuality now as well, in the culture as a whole, for better or for worse, that I think also uh, kind of evolved out of the early swinging stuff online. So it was it was a kind of historic moment really. Um and I very much put this sort of nineteen sixties to rest, I think, by the time I'd finished swinging. I didn't actually believe at the end of it that it was an alternative lifestyle that was um that was sustainable. Um I didn't think it really took you anywhere much beyond sort of prolonging the state of desire. Um and people kind of ended up sort of using each other as if they're objects, really. There's a lot of fetishizing of how people look and what their um, human qualities are. Um, so really, really it kind, of, um, it kind of came to a natural end for me, which was just the perfect time to write, to write the book about two confused and lost Generation X people, one fresh out of a divorce, the other an American by the name of Alice who is kind of feeling lost in the UK. And um, they try to, to solve their their sense of aimlessness with joining the swinging community. So why um, did, well, what, what am I going to ask? Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> did you have, um, did you have any longer term ongoing relationships with other couples who you swung with or was it all in a one night stand basis or a very short term basis um it was it was pretty much well on the, on a one night stand basis and as much as we were we were kind of exploring my partner and I were exploring all the possibilities mm -hmm. 
going into a candy shop and going, well, I'll have one of those and two of those, please, and three of these. And um, so it was, I think you really have to be in it for about a decade to come across the same people again. Uh-huh, so, right. There's so, there's so many people who are experimenting all, all the time. And there's a big turnover as well of people who just try it once or twice or three times. Um, How did you feel that it affected your your relationship with your partner? It's a remarkable thing that we actually came together as swinging partners from the start. So it wasn't like I had a relationship and we wanted to spice it up by um, being swingers. It was more that the, from the get-go we thought, okay, we could, we could experiment with this together. Mm. You know, we were both people who were sort of fresh out of long-term commitments as well uh, and looking for something that's not, that wasn't another commitment to walk straight into. Mm. I guess things things sort of reached an end as well. There's, there's this thing I've found with relationships in general that there's a sort of, if you're only in it for fun, then I think people find this with, you know, friends with benefits or fuck buddies, whatever you call them. Um, if you're only in it for fun, then when you start to really feel for each other and care for each other and see each other when you're down and feel the other person's pain and the emptiness, it can be, you know, the question arises is like, do you want to carry this person and do you want them to carry you? Or when the fun's over, is the game over as well? I think that's what we found was we 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 got in it for fun and transgressive kicks, but we didn't want to have a relationship with each other beyond that. Hmm. Um, so we both, we both really moved on from that. Um, and you know, there's other, there's other, other parts of my life as well. There's an interesting paradox with the first book, which is really just about promiscuity online. Um, it's called the last book you read. It's lots of short stories about people who are, whose relationships have broken up and they're looking for something online. The paradox being, again, that, that as soon as you start to care for someone, as soon as you feel vulnerable with someone, then you've got to move on to the next person. So uh, there's a dark aspect to this kind of inter- internet-enabled sexuality. You realize, or I did when I was writing these two books, that um, they're really what I was doing, what the characters were doing, were, were, were really a, a kind of flight from intimacy. It wasn't just commitment that we were running away from it was it was the idea that you could well it was like living with the idea that you could just reduce everything down to instant gratification and then move on to the next thing i mm-hmm. guess i look at that now as a kind of i like a flight or fight state that perhaps i and other members of my generation got into around relationships and broken relationships a flight or fight state. Flight, flight or That's... fight, like a highly adrenaline mm. state of crisis. Mm. Um, so, so like an adrenal reaction kicks in. I think this happens with people who are very promiscuous. Um, and I think it's it's a it's a behavior that's kind of rewarded by the internet as well. Mm. But mm. you know, we're given these dopamine hits of uh, of likes and and uh, attention online. And we're drawn to this sort of quick fix solutions rather than the long-term things. So, yeah, I, th- I think the internet dating, the swinging, these are quick fix, flight or fight scenarios. And uh, it's really an avoidance of, of the question of what could possibly be long-term 
mm. fearful reactions to maybe long-term things going wrong as they had for me anyway with, uh, with, with my rather painful divorce that I went through in 2003. Um, but yeah, so I don't think that, I don't really think ultimately that promiscuity or swinging are, are, are really sustainable because ultimately the horrible subject of compassion and commitment raise their ugly head. And, and before you know it, you've got love and care and, and responsibility and, and maybe you were only actually just running from these things to start with. Hmm. Well, I haven't yet read that book and I haven't watched the film, but I am planning to. Um, I know you're not, you were not so happy with the way that the film turned out, right? Um, it was, there's some really beautiful passages in the film. Um, and I really love the intimacy within the film, but I, I think we could have probably been stronger and we toned down the book quite a lot. Um, because there's some pretty graphic scenes of bisexuality in the book. And through the development process of the film, we were kind of nudged by developers, producers to sort of stay away from the bisexual um, aspect of it. Um, so I think we were maybe a little tame with the film. Um, I'm really happy to see, though, that it's picked up and it has an audience at last on YouTube. It's 22.3 million people now. 22.3 million, wow. 22.3 million. And we seem to be in, in Middle Eastern countries that, that <laughs> would be most interested in it. I hope they're watching the whole film, which is really, someone said it's really a study of um, how people deal with personal failures and the sense that life's not going to go as they planned. I hope mm. people sit through it and and get that realization rather than just clicking to the saucy bits which are which are many <laughs> <laughs> well i look forward to watching it finally i wanted to ask you a, a bit more about dystopian and utopian fictions um yeah. so this is the other article that you wrote for ario both those ario articles are really i mean i do think we've published a lot of good articles but they are Mm. Um, really stand out to me. Um, mm. And the you talk about the way in which, so there have been very few utopias, um, literary, yes. literary utopias. Um, the only two I'm mm -hmm. personally familiar with are Thomas Moore's one and also Herland. Um, and I mm -hmm. can confirm, as you say in your essay, that they're extraordinarily boring because... Uh, you know, it's the Tolstoyan thing. Every happy society is happy in the same way. And every unhappy one is unhappy in its myriad different ways. Well, it's also it's also impossible to depict the utopian human mm, subject. Mm. Who is this person who manages to survive in a world of no conflict and no jealousy and no private property and no longing and no sadness? What 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 could this person possibly be like? So um, you know, Willie Morris and his utopia news from nowhere, he, he just skates mm. around that whole sort of, of, of human, uh, you know, human psychology by just pumping his utopia full of descriptions of things that are beautiful. Everything's beautiful. The coins, the horses, the rivers, yes. the fields, the glassware, <laughs> plates, the road gardens, the ex exceedingly beautiful <laughs> books. And that can't be controlled by his central planning like the weather. Um, uh, uh, young women, strange enough, which he finds beautiful for some reason. Um, the forest, the architecture. Um, so 
It's just lists, right? It's just basically lists. Yes. Shopping lists. It's a fantasy shopping list. It is a fantasy shopping list. And here's one from here's one from Herland as well. You know, um, by by Charlotte Perkins Gilman, classic from 1915. The children of her utopia are vigorous, joyous, eager little creatures who knew peace, beauty, order, safety, love, wisdom, justice, patience, and plenty. There you go. In a big, bright, friendly world full of the most interesting and enchanting things to learn about and to do. Mm. In, in which the people everywhere were friendly and polite. So, again, it's just a, it's just a, it's just a trick of lingo. Yeah, it's just uh, it's just a way of just um, you know the flip side of that as well. In Herland again is 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 this banning of things you know so you've got no wild beasts, no criminals, no childhood diseases, no alcohol, no tobacco, no competition, no sex feelings, no marriage, and as you correctly pointed out, no men. Um, so all the things that that um, can cause problems are eradicated, and everything else is described as beautiful. There's it's um. It's a bit of a trick, really. It's not something that sustains any kind of narrative at all, because narratives require mm. conflict. And if you've got a, a utopia with no conflict, then you've got no it's story. Also, um, I find that um, Thomas More's utopia is an interesting example because um, mm. it's what is not mentioned, <laughs> what is kind of papered over, uh, literally in this case, mm. in these descriptions of utopia is usually what it takes to achieve that kind of exclusiveness. And in real life, of course, mm. I mean, some utopias do have hints of that. And you yes. talk about one of the ARIU articles, you talk about the Third Reich and the Hitlerian utopia. Mm. Um, you use that word also. Mm. That's also a kind of, let's get rid of all the undesirable elements and we'll be left with perfection. Um, and it's totally. not just that his vision of perfection was so... Um, wrong it's that all visions of that kind of perfection are actually deeply sinister well i mean hitler, yeah hitler developed that from the long tradition of utopianism mm, mm. So for example you find this you find exactly the same thing in, in aldous huxley's island and also in hg wells's uh, anticipations yeah um, the eugenics in well in wells yeah in well so he says um he will, get, he will get rid of congenital invalids, it's idiots, madmen, it's drunkards and men of vicious minds, it's cruel and furtive souls, it's stupid people, too stupid to be of use to the community, it's lumpish, unteachable and unimaginative people. All of these are to be gotten rid of um, by the great H.G. Wells and his utopia. Mm. Um, so, so, you know, Hitler was really following within this tradition that expanded out of, of you know, something we associate with the good and the beautiful. Um, but he was just, what he'd done is he'd cast the um, the people to be excluded from his Germanic utopia as, as, as one race of people. Um, but you find, literally, you'll find examples of eugenic sterilization ideas in Sir Francis Galton and also Condorcet as well in the French Revolution. Mm, mm. Um, the whole idea that, that you will choose the free men and you will reject and get rid of uh, those who are destructive to the utopia. You know, for, for Condorcet, that meant the, uh, that meant the, the guillotine. Mm. Um, 
for uh, for for Sir Francis Galton, who was involved with the Darwins, it meant sterilization. Mm. Um, so there's this really really dark side to utopian fiction, you know, in that list of no's uh, that you get in in Herland, um, you know, which include you know no sharp edges, no doors, you know, you've also got no men, you know, no 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 criminals. Mm. Um, and if you go back to Plato as well, you've got you've within his planned utopia, you've got you've got no no poets, um, you know, because they cause too much disturbance. Mm. Yeah, well, well, Thomas More in real life was of course torturing and was torturing heretics and having them sent to be executed. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, there's you know there's a sense in which utopia itself is just a great big heresy as well. So the idea that you can make heaven on earth, um, it really began with a chap called Palladius, who was who was um, a Roman Christian heretic, um, and um, Palladius believed that that uh, the commandments had been read incorrectly, that the Bible was was being misread, and that actually heaven was to be built by man on earth. Um, and Pelagius had to be got rid of by the early church because he pretty much got rid of the idea of, of heaven, heaven in the sky, you know. Um, so I, I like to refer to, to utopian idealism all the way up to communism as, as the Pelagian heresy. Uh, it's, it's, it's an idea of, of, uh, of heaven placed in the temporal realm of the future. And uh, I have to say, you even find this with certain aspects of uh, progressivism in the contemporary manifestation where, where people seem to be talking about a, a utopia somewhere set in the future and they're placing all their hopes and all their hatreds um, around this, this, uh, this yet-to-be-attained perfection placed in the future. It's all, it's all really just a, just a heretical vision of heaven, really. Um, and, you know, I don't believe in heaven. And as a result, I don't believe in utopia either, because utopia is just just a, a, a corrupted version of the heaven and the sky. So a utopian fictions are an absolute literary dead end, pretty much. Yeah. Um, but on the contrary, dystopian fictions have, um, there are so many wonderful dystopian fictions, and they've so many of them have proved so influential. Um, mm. Brave New World and 1984. Um, and even just recently on Netflix, both Sacred Games and Layla, the two, mm -hmm. I think, most viewed things on Indian Netflix are both dystopian mm. uh, theories mm. set mm. in a kind of, um, in, a, in a near future, in a near future yeah. India, Layla in particular, set in a future where the Hindu nationalists have taken over, and it's just extraordinary. Um, why do you think that dystopian fictions work so well? I think it's primarily because the human subject who's placed in the dystopian story is, is posed with human beings as a problem rather than as a solution. Like, there's no answer like there is in, in um, utopian fiction. So, so we have these dystopias that allow us to imagine the very, very worst. Um, horrific societies where technology is in control, where only men are in control, where uh, a totalitarian regime is, 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 is in control of us. Um, 
and it allows us to navigate where we are today. We use these things as metaphors all the time. So we go, oh, like the the introducing the introduction of the prison system, P R I S M, the surveillance system in America. That's a bit too nineteen eighty four for us. So we'll look at our civil rights, yeah, mm. or where we position ourselves via gender relations. We use the Handmaid's Tale as instead of anchor. Um, and in fact, it's even been used, the, the clothing's even been used in demonstrations um, over the last few years. Um, we we keep check on on um, technology through through uh, through films like The Matrix um, and, and the many, many dystopias which are based on, you know, AI going completely out of control and taking over society. So it's a really good, dystopian fiction is a, a really good tool, I think, for for thinking through the worst and trying to make plans accordingly. It's like a it's like a set of checks and balances, if you like, for society. We look at a bit of legislation. We even had this in Scotland recently with some hate, hate speech regulation. And a lot of us writers got together and went, no, 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 this is way too 1984. We have to oppose this. And we effectively got together and, and did oppose it. And we've, we've caused change to happen. Um, within the legislation, the, the uh, Scottish government had to rethink that legislation. So it's it's extremely useful. Another positive aspect of dystopia or dystopian fiction is that it makes us reconsider the idea of planning and, and the idea that there can be a plan for everyone, um, which is goes really to the heart of the um, utopian project. So basically, utopias, there's quite a lot of utopias in dystopian fiction that turn out to be hellish you know this is what one of the tropes of of uh, of dystopian fiction is the is the failed utopia it turns out to be a horror so for example you've got the ones who walk away from omelas the short story Ursula Le Guin in which you've got an entire utopian society but it's based on this really dark secret which is that all the evil all the violence must be dished out to this kid who's kept locked in a in a in a jail and tortured, and so the um, the the freedom within the societies is based on the suffering of this one child, um, and so the ones who walk away from Omelas are those who come to realise that their utopia is actually a lie. Um, so um, you've also got the same thing in Divergent as well, the the really popular um, film franchise where the the um, the dystopian world where you've got these you know, five different groups of of people within societies actually artificially being created by some social engineers who live beyond the world that people know. Um, again, you've got it in The Giver as well, and uh, the one about the kids running around the uh, the Maze Runner. Again, it's, it's, it's failed utopian social engineers have created a hell on earth, is this great trope. So I think it's... It, we were warned by dystopian fiction to be very wary of people who believe that they have a solution for everyone and for everything. Um, so I think that's, that's, you know, a powerful, powerful message and a warning for mm. us all. Mm. It's like in, in dystopian fiction, if to paraphrase something you said earlier, it's, the it's humanness and the human being and the things that make us characteristically human which are um which are the problem which pose a problem for the society and therefore you know it's the people in gattaca who aren't who are in humanly imperfect and 
it's the people who don't subscribe to or or mm. who can't subscribe to the totalitarian ideology mm. um or it's the way in which um in black mirror it's the way in which technology impacts um human lives so I, i'm thinking of the black mirror film the little movie they did called smithereen uh. um, about which is about a social media app mm. and a guy who is so addicted to the app um, uh, that it has terrible consequences for him. I don't actually want to give any spoilers. So I think it's a fantastic little movie. Um, but so what's placed at the center of a utopian novel is this kind of um, very abstract plan. And what's placed at the center of the dystopian novel is the fly in the ointment, the irritant, and that is human nature. Totally. And the human individual, and I guess that's what makes it so compelling as a literary genre. It's two. It's basically rests on two entirely different ideas of what a human being is. So, so the utopian novel is based on this really mechanistic idea of the blank slate human being. Everything is culture. Nothing is nature. Human nature does not exist. You know, it can be molded and shaped by brilliant social engineers, and that will be what. Um, creates the utopia and dystopian fiction on the other hand says hold on whoa you've got a kind of corrupted uh, model to start with here human beings are, are flawed and full of all these complex things that we don't yet understand which bring conflict to us and by the way you've really got to watch out for the social engineers who think that they can solve all this stuff um so you know also the utopian genre it's it's a world in which all Actions lead to exactly the consequences that that were planned. I, I don't know anything in the world that is free of unintended consequences. You know, mm, many mm. good intentions lead absolutely to hell. You know, you would have, for example, the idea of an agrarian revolution, a back to nature revolution, where people will oh God. people leave <laughs> the cities and everyone will be given a hoe and a rake and we'll get in touch with nature again. And then you've got Paul Pot and Year Zero. You know, and millions of Cambodians shot dead in the in the uh, in the countryside for for standing up against his his regime. Mm. Yeah, it's just the kind of stubborn, recalcitrant human nature, um, and that creates this. Um, that's what creates the drama, I guess, in the in the dystopian in the dystopian visions. I think the one um, the one utopian kind of fiction that I can think of, which is in a sense utopian and popular is Star Trek. Right. But of course, they have to go out to space to get away from the utopia back on planet Earth and in the Federation, because yeah. there's no, there can be no story there. Well, indeed. So, so the whole thing's about the conflict around the edges, and you, never, and you never ever really get to see what the utopia is like back at base. Well, later in in the later series, like in Deep Space Nine, we discover that there are some quite sinister things also happening back on Earth. Um, but uh, yeah, if you have a utopia at home, you've got to go out into space to get a story. Cool. Yeah, indeed, there's no there's no um, there's no drama in their plays, as it said in uh, the Visitor to um, Herland. <laughs> you know, they have plays, but there's no drama in them. <laughs> well, that's, wonderful that's really just the problem with the utopian thing um through and through really is is uh 
human beings are full of drama and conflict and and we're never going to have a society where we get rid of conflict we're going to have to find ways to live with ourselves you know we're going to have to have trade-offs as you say um and we're going to have to work together and listen to each other we can't just you know say half of the population has to be got rid of um you know this is a, a horrible recurring um belief system that that that, that that recurs in unexpected places, you know. Um, we're kind of living through that just now. Mm. The resurgence of an unexpected utopianism when we thought that it was all gone and done. We'd learned our lessons, but it seems to be back. Oh, are you, um, what are you referring to specifically? Oh, nothing much. <laughs> <laughs> we'll let it play out over the next few years and see, and see where that particular utopia goes. Right. Um, Thank you so much, Ewan. Thank you, Ayala. It's been great. <laughs> Thank you. It's been, apart from technological hiccups, uh-huh. um, <laughs> um, it's been it's been really fantastic to talk to you, and I highly recommend um, both Nina X and um, Tales from the Mall. And I look forward to reading your other novels. Great. Feel free. <laughs> and I'll put all the details uh, in the show notes as usual. And uh, have a wonderful week, everyone. Bye for now. Thank you so much for listening to Two for Tea. Your patronage helps to keep this podcast alive and flourishing. Your support means the world to me. Stay well, stay happy, and have a wonderful week.